Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. As we continue our series through the book of Acts, which tells us the story of the early church. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, is where we'll be this morning. Let me begin by asking you a question. Would you have joined the first century church? I mean, if you were there, you saw Jesus turn the water into wine, or perhaps you were in the city of Samaria when the woman from the well came running into the city and said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done and forgave me and can forgive you. Would you have joined the first century church? If you had been there and heard the stories about Jesus being arrested by night, tried by night, falsely accused by night, and then condemned by night, if you had heard the story of him being carried to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he was crucified, buried. If you had heard the story of the early church that that the tomb was actually empty, would you have joined the first century church as you saw what it cost Jesus and what it cost Peter and John as they were arrested? And then as you saw these disciples who at one point were very scared men and women and then all of a sudden became very bold, would you have joined the first century church? In our text this morning, we observe a variety of responses to that question. Some joined. Some said, yes, we believe it to be true that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and on the third day rose again. And we, we want to join this company. They were added to the number. Some joined. Some observed from a distance and they said now we'll stand a little ways off but we'll watch we'll observe from a distance some held the church in high esteem and some flat out said no but what about you Would you have joined the first century church? I want to talk to you this morning and over the next few weeks about being a church worth joining. Being a church worth joining. Now, you can probably tell that I'm going to challenge some of you to take the step of joining the church, of becoming a covenant member. In fact, on the, uh, the welcome table out there, we've put some member bio forms. This is sort of our first step in uh, joining the local church. So I'm going to challenge you to join the local church, join this local church. If you find that Catalyst isn't the church for you, find a local church that is worth joining Or perhaps if you're from out of town, find a local church that is worth joining there. But the challenge is not merely for you to join the church. The challenge is for us to be a church worth joining. So, would you have joined the first century church? Or would you have, like many others did, chosen to observe from a distance, perhaps listening with interest as the reports came in, as you heard murmurings in the marketplace that Jesus really had risen from the dead? If you had heard stories of persecution about Peter and John, would you have observed from a distance? Or, or perhaps even asking questions about what was going on, or even taking advantage of some of the benefits of association while avoiding the responsibility of committing? Would you have joined the first century church? A recent how a Gallup poll revealed for the first time in 80 years since they started recording such things, the majority of Americans are not members or not affiliated with a local church, synagogue, or mosque. The majority of Americans are not affiliated in formal membership with a religious organization. They started measuring this in 1930-something, and then they kept measuring it, and they kept measuring it. The Gallup poll reports 
that Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline, dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. So it seems that many in the 21st century have answered quite clearly about joining the church. They've said, no thanks. The majority of Americans have said, no thanks. It seems that the church is not worth joining. It's a sobering question sometimes to look in the mirror and to ask, would you join you if you were a local church? Jonathan Lehman in his helpful book on church membership explains that biblical church membership is not like club membership, though we tend to think that way. We hear church membership and we think club membership. Let me join the country club. Let me join the uh, local uh, YMCA club. Let me join the club. He says, no, it's not like that. It's more like kingdom citizenship. We are citizens of a kingdom, not members of a country club. And that is the foundation of church membership. So let's look at Acts chapter 5 and see a church worth joining. In Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we're going to see three marks of a church worth joining. Three marks of a church worth joining. And again, I want to challenge you to join the local church. And if you're a member of Catalyst, let's continue to work together to be a church worth joining. Number one, the local church, a church worth joining, makes the gospel visible in the community. Makes the gospel visible in the community. Luke records, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, signs and wonders have always been a a part of God's work in the world. God proved his authority through signs and wonders in Pharaoh's day when he delivered his people out of Pharaoh's awful, awful rule and reign. You remember the plagues in the Exodus story. Those were signs and wonders demonstrating the power of God. The psalmist regularly turns his attention and his affections to the signs and wonders and marvelous deeds of what God has done. As we turn to the Gospels, we regularly see signs and wonders performed by Jesus. He turned the water into wine. He didn't just do that to say, oh, cool, look what I can do. It was a sign and a wonder. He healed many uh, who were a variety of diseases. Um, He uh, showed the, the woman at the well just how deep his compassion was. Regularly, we see signs and wonders performed by Jesus. Mark, in fact, concludes his gospel with these words. And they, Jesus' disciples, after his resurrection, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Signs always accompany and confirm the message of the gospel. So we can understand here in Acts chapter 5, when we read about signs and wonders being performed through the early church, we can understand that there is gospel teaching implied here. You never in the Bible have signs and wonders without gospel teaching. The signs and wonders are always affirmations of what has been taught. So in Mark chapter 2, uh, excuse me, Mark, uh, yeah, Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a man who was bought by four friends. And he didn't just heal this man. This man wasn't able to walk on his own. He looked around at the group of people that were gathered together, and he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to this man, get up and walk. 
And the man got up and walked. The whole point of Mark chapter 2 and the whole point of every sign and wonder is not merely that Jesus could do it, but that we should believe what he said. We should trust him when he said, I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus declares your sins are forgiven, how do we know whether or not to trust him? That's the point of signs and wonders, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Clear gospel teaching and compelling gospel displays. That's what we see in the early church. It really doesn't matter how clearly you can articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ if nobody believes you when you open up your mouth. If you haven't earned the right to be heard, to borrow a phrase from Young Life, phenomenal ministry, then it doesn't matter how clearly you can articulate biblical theology if nobody's listening. And we can flip it around as well. The, vice, the, 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 the opposite is true as well. It doesn't matter how many people are listening to you if you can't clearly articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a Christian, you must do both. You must earn the right to speak to your neighbors. They must know that you care, and they must know why you care. These are signs and wonders that accompany the gospel teaching. John's gospel, in John's gospel, the middle section is titled Signs of the Messiah. He gets to John chapter 14, verse 12, where Jesus stops and he looks at his followers and he says, you've seen me do all of these miracles and greater works than these will you do. He looks at his followers and says, greater works than you, than these will you do. J.D. Greer asked the question, really? I mean, I don't mean to doubt Jesus, but really greater works than Jesus's? That's a little hard to believe. Have any of us ever preached with greater clarity, healed the sick with greater power, prayed with greater compassion than Jesus? No one in their right mind would claim that they were greater than Jesus. So what did Jesus mean, John 14, 12, when he said, your signs and wonders will be greater than my signs and wonders? Well, one of the things he meant is in scope. He meant that you will get the gospel places that the physical Jesus never got the gospel. John 15, Jesus prayed that his followers would bear fruit. And you, when you get the gospel to your neighbors, are answering that prayer. In Acts chapter 4, just before this passage, the apostles had prayed in the midst of persecution that God would, quote, stretch out his hand to heal and signs and wonders would be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You can picture them, the early church, on their knees. They're, they're, they're praying. Uh, Peter and John had just been released from prison. They're scared that they're going to be arrested as well. You can picture them on their knees, surrounded by threats, and they pray for God's hand to continue to minister. And God answered answers that prayer right here in Acts chapter 5 through them. When Luke notes that these signs and wonders were done through the hands of the apostles, he's not implying that they were the power of the miracle, but merely that they were the vehicle. That's why we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You might think about it this way. Somebody right now, somewhere, is praying a prayer that God may intend to use you to answer. Somebody right now may be praying a prayer that God intends to use you to answer. I'll prove it to you. How many people, uh, many of us, I won't ask you to raise your hands, many of us have family members, loved ones who live far from here. 
and they're not going to come to church with you on a Sunday morning. And so you're praying that God would put somebody in their path that would introduce them to the Lord, would connect them to a local church. You're praying that God would put somebody, somebody on, in their class, somebody on their team, somebody in their workplace, somebody that's going to move into the empty house on their street, and that God would use them to reach your loved one. Well, somebody somewhere else is praying for a loved one in Newport News or in York County or at the shipyard or at CNU or in, in your workplace. And God may intend to use you to be the answer to that prayer. In his powerful book, Loving Your Community, Stephen Byers writes, as we consider how to position ourselves in our communities, our churches in our communities, we should carefully and prayerfully think about Jesus' words in John 15. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so, be, so prove to be my disciples. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the question for us as we look at the early church is, are you bearing any fruit? Are you making the gospel visible? Are there any signs and wonders being performed in or through you? Viers goes on in, the, in this book to study the book of Titus in the New Testament. And he noticed how Paul encouraged Titus as he was starting the church in Crete to give attention to doctrine and deeds. He makes a big emphasis on both. It's a very short book, three chapters, I think three, four chapters. So if you need some homework and you're looking for a book in the Bible to read, start with Titus. And look for, man, what does he tell me to believe and what does he tell me to do? Doctrine and deeds. Paul repeatedly talks about good deeds in his letter to, uh, letter to Titus. It's interesting. Paul is helping Titus start a church. I've, I've heard the book of Titus referred to as a church planting manual. And he says, and he puts this emphasis on good deeds, good deeds. This leads buyers to ask two pressing questions. And we're not going to put these up on the screen. So if you want to remember them, you got to write them down or type them into your phone. All right, here they are. Number one, how much evidence is there that you care about the people who live in your town at this particular time and place? The first question Viers asks as he look at, looks at Paul's words to Titus and this emphasis on good deeds and signs and wonders in the early church is how much evidence is there that you care about the people who live in your town at this particular time and place? How much evidence? Signs and wonders are evidence. They're evidence Watchman Nee, who was a believer in China in the early 20th century, uh, once posed a question to Christians. He said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Again, he was a believer in early 20th century China, and he was arrested for being a Christian. And it's said that they gathered thousands of pages of evidence against him. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? How much evidence is there that you care about the people who live in your town at this particular time and place? Signs and wonders. Now, one of the things that signs and wonders aren't they aren't the church sitting around arguing about what constitutes a sign and a wonder. 
I'm fascinated by how quickly we as Christians can say, let's get together and argue about a theological principle instead of saying, let's get together and work this out in our neighborhoods and in our our workplace and in our life. The Bible is meant to be biography. It's meant to be lived. Now, the second question that Viers points out is how much time and attention are you giving to engaging in good deeds to meet pressing needs? How much time and attention are you giving to engaging in good deeds to meet pressing needs? Again, as we look at the early church and the signs and wonders that were performed through them, Viers encourages us to ask this question. How much time and attention are you giving to engaging in good deeds to meet pressing needs? Let me ask you the question this way. What if you tithed your meals? You have three meals a day. All right, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, in case you forgot what they were. But let's all assume that we're normal and we either eat breakfast on the go or we just have a cup of coffee and we call that breakfast. Okay, all right, so now you're down to two. Two meals a day, seven days a week. Last time I checked, that equals 14 meals a week. What if you tithed your meals and and let's just call it one. You took one meal a week and you said, you know what, I'm gonna use one meal a week to reach somebody for Jesus. I'm gonna use one meal a week to have lunch with a coworker who I'm not sure where they're at on their spiritual journey. Or I'm gonna have one meal a week where I'm gonna reach out to that long lost friend and I'm gonna try to connect with them and see where they're at spiritually. What if you tithe your meals? Zach and I are in the process of rewriting our job descriptions to include 10 hours a week towards outreach. Because we want to change the culture of our church and think outward. How do, we, how do we move in that direction? Are you making the gospel visible in your community? I'll ask the same question one more way. If God gave you a magic pen and paper, and he gave you a pen and a blank piece of paper, and he said, I want to perform signs and, uh, signs and deeds and wonders through you in your neighborhood for Jesus' glory. You just write it down. I, I want to work through you to reach people for Jesus in your community. Blank piece of paper and a pen. What would God have you to do? What would God have you to do? For some of you, you you're automatically thinking about the elementary school across the street. And you'd say, man, I would want every kid in that school to know how to read and then teach them how to read a Bible verse. I want them to be able to read John 3.16 on a piece of paper. Some of you think of the elderly in your neighborhood and you think, man, I want them to finish well with Jesus. I want them to know that Jesus walks them through some of their scary moments. Some of you think of people who are alone. Some of you think of people, you think of a variety of people. Who would you reach for Jesus? God was at work through the early church. That's what signs and wonders are. Signs and wonders performed through the hands of the apostles. J.D. Greer asked the question, do you see ministry as something you are doing for God or something God is doing through you as you yield yourself to him? The early church, the church worth joining, makes the gospel visible in their community. Secondly, the early church, the the church that is worth joining, makes the gospel visible in corporate worship. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. They were all together. 
We've been reminded recently of the importance and the power of corporate worship gathered together. The corporate gathering of the local church demonstrates the beauty of the gospel in ways that nothing else can. But they didn't just gather together. They were all together in Solomon's portico. Why Solomon's portico? This was an outside part of the temple in which a large crowd could gather. Gentiles could gather in Solomon's portico. Yet they weren't allowed inside the temple. Uh, Women, I believe, were allowed in uh, Solomon's portico. Yet at the time, they weren't allowed in the temple. So why did they gather in Solomon's portico? They were there in Acts chapter 5. They were there in Acts chapter 3. Jesus was there in John chapter 10. Some people suggest that they met in Solomon's portico simply because it was large enough space. But that doesn't make any sense. Because for that point, they could have used a field somewhere. No, they met here for the purpose of worship. They were at the temple, but not inside the temple for the purpose of worship. Peter and many of the others could have gone into the temple as a Jew, but he chose to remain in Solomon's portico because he no longer approached God through the sacrifices of bulls and goats, but now through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The gospel is to be clear in our worship. Christian worship is to be undeniably Christocentric. If you ever go to a church service... And you could sing the same songs, pray the same prayers, listen to the same sermon if Jesus Christ had never died for your sins, if he was never buried and rose again. If, if, if you could sing the same songs and dismiss Jesus, then whatever you just sat through was not a church service. It, it may have been very inspiring. It may cause you to do great things. But Christian worship is undeniably Christocentric. The gospel was clear in their corporate worship. The gospel doesn't just compel us into the world. It draws us near to God in worship through Christ. Those of us who have been redeemed by Christ worship differently than those who have not. The lyrics strike deeper. The prayers bring greater comfort. The word speaks with authority. So again, it asks the question or begs the question, are you making the gospel clear in corporate worship? You might say, well, hold on, Jeff. I I don't get to choose the songs. I don't get to choose the sermon. Well, yeah, the gospel ought to be clear in the sermon. It ought to be clear in the songs. But it it also ought to be clear in a thousand other ways. When you get ready to come to church on a Sunday morning, do you honestly believe that God is up to something that he's at work in the people around you? Do, you? do you believe that he intends to use you to minister the gospel to others through you? And when you're here on a Sunday morning, are you eagerly seeking God to do something? 1 Corinthians 14, Paul commands the Corinthian believers to pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Do you earnestly desire God to do something with the gospel on a Sunday morning? Or are you passive in your participation? You may raise your hand in worship, eager for God to move. You might walk over and meet the person you don't know, expecting that God is at work in that person's life. You you might take notes during the sermon, anticipating God to speak. Or make it a point to share something that God impressed on you or to seek to encourage other people in the room with something about Jesus. They were all together in Solomon's portico. But Luke's point isn't merely that they were in the same place. It's that they were of one heart and one mind, as Paul said, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Are we, are you, are we united in the gospel? Are we making the gospel clear in our corporate worship? 
Thirdly and finally, a church worth joining trusts God to make the gospel fruitful. We want to make the gospel visible in our community. We want to make the gospel of Jesus Christ clear and visible in our gathering. And we want to trust God to make the gospel fruitful. Luke records a variety of responses here. It's almost dizzying. Scholars disagree all over the place with what Luke is saying here. But let's just look at some of the bullet points. None of the rest dare join them, verse 13. They're not, scholars aren't sure who the rest are, but okay, some people said, no, 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 I'm not joining the local church. But the people held them in high esteem, verse 13. Okay, so there was a high, they thought highly of them. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, verse 14. Okay, so some people said no, but a whole lot of people said, yes, I'm in. I'm going to join. I'm men and women and all kinds of people. Yes, let's join. And then they carried out the sick so that Peter's shadow might fall on them. The, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It was a mess. It was a mess. Some said, no, dismiss the church. They're crazy. We're not joining them. Some said, yes, we're in. We're going to join. We're going to be added to the number. Some said, hey, I've got this sick son. Would you heal them? It, the, it was a mess. It was varied in their response. There are multiple responses to the gospel, each bearing fruit in its own way as the Lord sees fit. As we make the gospel visible in the community and in our corporate worship, we have to trust God to make the gospel fruitful. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Trust is not passive. It doesn't mean we don't ask people where they're at on their spiritual journey or ask our, somebody if, if they would be, have any interest in reading the Bible with us. You're not trusting God to work in someone's life if you refuse to be an active part in God's work in their life. It's like the illustration of the baby on the train tracks. If you ever walk up and you see a baby laying on a train tracks and you see a train coming on the train tracks, don't step back and say, I'm going to trust God to deliver that baby, right? Don't get down on your hands and knees and say, God, is it your will for me to get that baby off that train track? I'm not going to move until I know it's your will. No, it's his will. Okay, if you were wondering, it's his will that you get the baby off the train tracks if the train's coming. You don't have to pray about it. You, you can know it, right? In, in the same way, we don't, we're not going to stand back and say, God, we're going to trust you to move in our community, and we're not going to do anything about it. God, I'm going to trust you to reach the people on my street, and I'm not going to go meet them. God, I'm going to trust you to bring comfort to that, that uh, widower who lives on my street. I'm going to trust you to bring comfort. God, would you send somebody? God, would you send? There, there I see them outside in their yard. Would you send somebody, oh God? What if he intended to send you? Go. Go. Now, there's a note here that we need to at least address. that, that they, they bought the sick so that Peter's shadow might fall on them, and that they might be healed by the touching of Peter's shadow. All kinds of disagreeing about this, all kinds of um, theories and, and ideas, and what, is, what does this mean? Well, on the one hand, we do see miraculous healings in the book of Acts. 
And there's no verse in the Bible in which God says, and I am done. I'm not not doing that anymore. But what we do find is that it seems to be tapering off so that later on, as you read your Bible and the letters that were written later, they're praying for healing, not expecting miraculous healing the way that we might see it in Acts. Some scholars point out that, that Peter never says his shadow will heal. In fact, quite the opposite in the book of Acts. But they thought that Peter was so close to Jesus that if they could just get near him, close enough for a shadow to fall, they would be healed. I want to be so close to Jesus that people mistakenly think if I could just get close enough For Jeff's shadow to fall on me, I'd experience the touch of Christ. Now, let me be clear, because that can be really dangerous territory. I want that, not because I want their praise, but because I want that measure of Jesus' presence. I want to be so close to the risen Christ. I want to be so in union with him that people think, and they're going to be wrong, but okay, I'll I'll correct that later, right? They think, man, if I could just get close to Jeff, I want that measure of Jesus' presence in my life. The main thrust here is simply this. God was at work. And Catalyst, I want you to know that God is at work. As surely as he was at work in Acts chapter 5, he's at work among us and through us today in a bunch of different ways. We put out some blank note cards on the uh, seats this morning. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab one of those blank note cards if you don't mind. Can I have one? Thank you. I meant to bring one up. Thank you, sir. Uh, And I I didn't. Um, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to write down two or three ways that you see God at work in Catalyst Church. Churches call these evidences of grace. They're glimpses of God at work among us. You might be here and say, Jeff, it's, it's the first time I've ever been here. I don't, you know, I don't go here once. Then just say something nice about the preaching. Okay? All right? That's a surefire way to win at church. All right, but here's here's the deal. God is at work among us, I'm convinced. And we do well to tell each other about it. So I'm gonna get you to write down two or three evidences of grace. And as you think about them, as you grab that pen and write them down, I'm gonna tell you a couple that come to my mind. I was in a coffee shop this week when I saw a friend of mine who has visited Catalyst recently, but as part of his job, he has to visit a number of different churches. And uh, he happened to swing by Catalyst because it's uh, near where he lives. And um, he said, Jeff, let me tell you something that Catalyst is knocking out of the park right now. He said, man, you guys are killing it. And, and, And he pointed at me and he said, your wife and all of a sudden, I kind of bucked up, right? I'm in the middle of this coffee shop. I'm like, whoa, 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 man, you talking about my wife? Hold up, what's happening, right? Uh, fisticuffs right here in the middle of the coffee shop. Um, he said, your wife and the Catalyst Kids volunteers are awesome. And, man, he just started grinning. He was like, dude, you have no idea. My wife loves your church, because she can bring her kids there, our kids there, right? And, 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 and she knows, man, we know they're going to be taken care of while we sit under the word. He said, man, your kids' ministry is knocking it out of the park. Now, he wasn't just telling us that to kind of make us feel good about ourselves. That was evidence to him of God's grace. Uh, 
talked to one of our members this week who, uh, like many of us, is finding herself um, uh, uh, homeschooling or, 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 or schooling from home uh, her grandkids. I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, Jeff, let me tell you something. One of our members, uh, Anita, has been a godsend to me throughout this schooling experience. She said, I don't know, how to, I don't know much about uh, uh, teaching preschoolers, but Anita reached out to me, who's a retired preschool teacher, and, man, she, she helped me. She provided material to me. She gave me resources that I could use to minister to my kids. That's an evidence of grace. Perhaps you're, we're seeing daughters get plugged into Christian community for the first time in a long time. We're seeing friends become open to the gospel for the first time in decades. We are seeing evidences of grace. So again, write down two or three evidences of grace that you see at Catalyst Church. And then when you, after the service, bring that card up to me and um, uh, or you can put it in the giving kiosk uh, on, on your way out. We want to celebrate evidences of grace. God is at work through Catalyst Church. I've recently joined the Neighborhood Welcome Committee. We're in a, a local neighborhood here, and they have a welcome committee that once a month will go visit people who have moved into the neighborhood. So I reached out to them and said, hey, I'm Jeff. I'm pastor of Catalyst Church in the neighborhood. I'd love to join your welcome committee if that's okay with you. And then she said, oh, it'd be phenomenal. So this past Wednesday, I, I went out. It was me, and there were two women from the neighborhood uh, community, and we drove around to six different houses, and they've got this basket that they've put together, and they deliver it, and it's all based off of a, It's a Wonderful Life, the, the movie, and you know, bread so that you'll never go hungry. And she, she's done a great job putting this basket together. It's really impressive. Um, I need to watch that movie, I've learned. Uh, but she, because uh, every time she was like, you've seen the movie. I was like, ah, you know. Okay, um, uh, so I need to watch a movie. So, um, but, but I'm standing there in, in the road. We're getting ready to go knock on one of the doors and talk to somebody. And I'm talking to this lady, and she said, well, tell me about your church. And I told her about our church, told her about what we're doing with the elementary school. We purchased a reading program for them last year. We've established a reading room. We've um, uh, fed lunch to the, uh, the teachers the other Wednesday, paid for a food truck to come out. And, and she stopped, and she said, man, your church is really doing something in the community. I said, well, we're trying, right? Now, there are a thousand other things that we're doing that nobody even knows about. And we don't, we don't do it so that we get recognized. We do it so that we build a bridge for the gospel. Evidences of grace. And friends, the greatest evidence of his grace is when someone responds to Jesus Christ in faith. When someone steps out and displays that through baptism. We display the gospel with these acts of God's love, all of them pointing to the greatest act of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is that you? Is that you? The question is not merely, are you performing signs? The question is, have you believed God for the greatest of signs? Namely, Christ crucified for your sins, Christ buried, and Christ resurrected. Friends, if you've never come to Christ, come to him this morning. Find in him a savior bigger than your sins. Find in him, big, uh, find in him one who is strong enough to undo all of evil's influence in you. Be saved. 
Be baptized, be lowered into the water and raised to walk in newness of life. Join the local church. Become a member. Friends, we want to be a church worth joining. We want to make the gospel visible in our community. We want to make the gospel visible in our corporate worship. And we want to trust God to make the gospel fruitful both in us and through us. Friends, if you're a believer, I'm going to invite you to grab the communion elements that are in the pew in front of you.